Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, the New York City, New Jersey Philly edition. I am Jeff Smelser, and with me as usual is Joe Works from Fairlawn, New Jersey. Good afternoon, Joe. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing today? Very, very well. And I'm in Exton, Pennsylvania. Um, again, we want to take a moment here at the beginning of the webcast to alert our viewers that if you are in the northern New Jersey area or the Philadelphia area, we would certainly be glad to hear from you in person. Uh, Joe works with the church that meets in Fairlawn right there on the corner of Morlock and Plaza, right, Joe? That's exactly right. Very close to uh, 208 or Highway 4, uh, Highway 17, uh, very conveniently located getting in and out anywhere in this uh, northeastern New Jersey area. And uh, Sunday morning, your meeting time, what time do you meet Sunday morning, sir? We have Bible class at 10 here, and worship then begins at 11 o'clock. you have a Bible study tonight? We do. What time? We have a Bible study at 7.30. We'll meet at 7 o'clock here in Exton, Pennsylvania for our Bible class tonight, and we'd be happy to have anybody visit with us tonight, or Sunday mornings we meet uh, at 11 a.m., and we have classes an hour before that at 10 a.m. Well, we've got some interesting topics to talk about today. Yes, uh, Go ahead. Let me mention one other uh, item. Uh, also have opportunity to work with a church down in Tenton Falls uh, Sunday afternoons. It's kind of in central Jersey, shore region. Um, uh, it's, it's over very close uh, to uh, the ocean. Uh, so if anybody's in that area, uh, the church there would certainly welcome uh, their visits, and uh, uh, they would be edified by worshiping with that group as well. Do you still, you, I know you, one time you were going down, I think, uh, regularly, maybe every week. Uh, yeah, I still go down there every Sunday afternoon. Is that a, a primarily Portuguese-speaking congregation, or is that a different congregation? That's a different one. I also work with a Portuguese congregation in Newark Sunday mornings before Fairline, but then uh, the Church in Shore Region, they have a Bible study at one fifteen. Chip Miles teaches, and then we have worship at 2.15. I can, I can only make it for the worship, so... Um, you have a busy Sunday every week. I try to get a full week's worth on Sunday since I only work one day a week. And you, and you, and you actually, <laughs> but you, from what from what I hear, you actually, you're such a health nut. You actually run from one city to the other, right on foot to to do this, right? Well, when when my when my uh, uh, plantar fasciitis isn't acting up, I try to yeah you know, get as many miles in as I can there. Yeah, in in I think it's not I think it's not on foot though. All right. Uh, well, we've got some interesting topics today. Our primary topic we're going to be talking about. Um, uh, I can't remember what it is. It's a very interesting topic. I was real. Oh yes, skip generations. Yeah, skip generations. We talked about genealogies the last week, and and we had uh, Luke Moyer with us to talk about just the significance of genealogies generally in the Bible. One of the things that comes up as we look at the claims that the earth is four and a half billion years old or something like that, and then people want to try to reconcile that with the Bible, is the idea that, well, there are skipped generations, and maybe we can squeeze millions of years into the biblical record by acknowledging skipped generations. So we'll talk a little bit about that today. But before that, we've got a couple other topics, right? We do. Yes. Uh, one of the things that we were talking about uh, in the previous week is to try to maybe discuss some things that are current events, uh, particularly as they relate to uh, spiritual matters. So we got two of those. One is there's a manuscript in the news uh, that is being hyped as some discovery that sheds new light 
something that was left out of the Bible. It's another one of these kinds of things. Maybe you've heard about it, the first apocalypse of James. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And I guess the first thing we want to talk about, yesterday, the United States Supreme Court heard the case of Jack Phillips, who is a baker in Colorado, and he declined to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple uh, that wanted him to bake their cake so that they could uh, celebrate their marriage, uh, as they would call it. And um, so that's something that has been on my mind recently, praying that... uh, that the leaders of this nation and particularly the Supreme court might yield a ruling that would uh, make it uh, that would protect. I hate to say it this way because the fact is you and I have the right to do what is right, no matter what the law says, but we would certainly be blessed or we consider it a blessing if our laws were such that they recognized that they acknowledged our right to do what is right and not to involve ourselves in what is wrong. So thought we might spend a few minutes talking about that. And as we get into that, let me remind our viewers, you can join us by means of Facebook in the comments section. You can send comments if you'd like to participate in the discussion we're having, or if you'd like to ask a question that you would like to hear addressed on the webcast today or through the uh, Q&A uh, icon at the bottom of your uh, Zoom uh, meeting uh, page, you can send us questions that way. Joe, um, you want to talk a little bit about what's going on, just the, what's going on with this case, this um, case of the Baker in Colorado? Sure. So uh, I forget what the exact date was, but it's been a while back because it's gone through several other uh, commissions in Colorado and then court system all the way up now to the Supreme Court. So obviously that takes a long time, but before gay marriage was even allowed in Colorado. That's right. These two men went to Massachusetts, got married, wanted to celebrate their uh, union, if you will, in, uh, in Colorado. They went to this baker who is, I guess, pretty famous in that area and wanted him to make a cake celebrating gay marriage. Um, and uh, he from what I read just very quickly into it said, I I don't do those. Um, uh, And uh, they left and then filed a grievance against him with the commission uh, there in Colorado. Uh, I guess like a labor commission or something like that. I forget what the exact term is uh, equal rights commission. And uh, they sided with the, with a couple against the Baker. Um, One of the interesting things in that case was one of the people on that commission actually spoke rather negatively in, to, in regard to religion um, and so showed her cards in, uh, in that matter um, and then went on up through the appellate system and uh, consistently, I think, being ruled against the baker. But uh, now it's at the Supreme Court. Seems pretty obvious from everything that I read yesterday that the court is four and four, uh, four in favor of the Baker, four in favor of the homosexual community, and uh, one justice will make the decision. That's probably one of the more concerning things as far as our nation is that this is even a close call. Yeah, uh, it, it, it is. And, and I appreciate your going back and kind of laying out just what this story is about a little bit. Let's do a couple of things. Let's talk from a biblical perspective, first of all, um, uh, what what should my stand as a Christian be if I'm a baker 
and the gay couple comes in and they say, we would like you to make a, a wedding cake for us as we celebrate our marriage. This cake, of course, is going to be part of that celebration. Um, why, why does that, why does that require me to, to take a stand? Maybe let's take a, a minute to talk about that. And, um, and then let's maybe just uh, talk a little bit about some of the discussion that went on in the hearing before the Supreme Court yesterday. But from a biblical perspective, what, what principles come to mind for a Christian here? Uh, one of the things that came, comes to my mind would be passages uh, like we find in Ephesians, where we're taught to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Yeah. Uh, listed in that, uh, uh, even within that text, you, you have uh, fornication being talked about. Yeah, it's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, where fornication is mentioned. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse um, 12, well, let's start in verse 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather even reprove them. For the things which are done by them in secret, it is a shame even to speak of. This kind of thing used to, it would have been something done in secret. Now people are not ashamed of it. But nonetheless, the Christian is told not to have fellowship with with the unfruitful works of darkness. And, and this is a good application of this passage. You know, Joe, I think that for a lot of years, I heard this passage quoted by Christians more with application to my associating with, uh, sharing a pew with, uh, somebody who might be teaching some doctrine that I disagreed with. But really what this passage is talking about is participating in somebody else's evil deed, sin. Am I participating in an evil deed if I, if I make a wedding cake and I put two men on the top of the cake kissing one another and I write something uh, joyfully uh, extolling the, the beauty of this, of this union and, and have that cake used in that celebration? It sure seems like to me that's participating in that. Certainly is. Uh, it's not just selling them a cake for a birthday or some innocent event. Uh, it's not an act of discrimination against the men individually, but it's a question of whether you're going to participate in that ungodly union. So let's take it out of the category of homosexuality just for the moment, and let's just talk about fornication in general. Um, you know, Paul says in First Corinthians, the fifth chapter, that when he said not to have company with the fornicator, with those who are in sin, with fornicators. He was not talking about those of the world because then we'd have to go out of the world. So there's an acknowledgement that we're going to live amongst fornicators and we're going to do business with and we're going to associate with fornicators. But if there are two people who come into my place of business and they are wanting to, and they're both, uh, let's say, let's say they're wanting to have a, um, I don't know, a Mardi Gras party or some kind of hedonistic party or pagan party where it's the point of the party is sexual immorality. And they want me to bake a cake. And on that cake, they want me to say something about um, having joyful unions at your party, talking about the sexual unions. I couldn't do that. Right. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to have my car repaired by one of these people if he's a mechanic. It doesn't mean that if I'm a mechanic, I'm going to refuse to repair his car. But in that act, I am endorsing the very sin that the Bible condemns. 
And, and we have for a long time in our country recognized that uh, individuals can indeed abstain from things that bothers their conscience, whether it would be making something for the KKK or some pro-Nazi group or whatever. Um, that's been regularly understood. But now we have this special class of people uh, that are expecting special uh, favors in these, this regard. Romans one thirty two is another passage that comes to mind. After talking about all kinds of sins that were typical amongst the Gentile world, he says in verse 32, who knowing the ordinance of God, that they that practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but also consent with them that practice them. And here's the thing, Joe. This whole thing is about consent. It really is about endorsing the homosexual lifestyle. For example, Justice Kennedy is the is the Kennedy is the justice that you referred to earlier, who's kind of right. the swing vote, and we don't know which way he's going to go. And I was appreciative of the fact that he um, seemed to acknowledge the necessity of of um, re- recognizing people's rights to worship God in accordance with their conscience and to act in according in accordance with their conscience. But at one point in the uh, hearing, he said this. Let's see if I can find it. Um, yeah. Justice, this is from the New York Times. Justice Anthony M. Kennedy, who almost certainly holds the crucial vote in the case, said a couple of things. He asked whether a baker could put a sign in his window saying, we do not bake cakes for gay weddings. A lawyer for the Trump administration, which supports Mr. Phillips, that would be the baker, said yes, so long as the cakes were custom made. In other words, the baker could put a sign in the window saying, we do not bake cakes for gay weddings. And Justice Kennedy looked troubled. You would not think that an affront to the gay community, he asked. In other words, the concern here is we, we can't have people making it sound like homosexuality is wrong or sinful. That would be an affront to the gay community. And, and, and if that becomes his position, which is a, a big question mark, yeah. uh, uh, based on the other things that he said. Seem he to, did say some things in the other direction. But, but if that does become a, a position that he takes or a reason for his position, um, uh, then we have reached a point in, in our society where it will be illegal to offend anyone with any language. Think about where that leads us then as evangelists. I, I couldn't say anything against any kind of fornication or any kind of sexual immorality. I would offend a lot of people in this country. A, a bit ironic that it's the judicial branch that's discussing that when we have such clear problems in both uh, the executive and the legislative branches. Of ironic. <laughs> that kind of activity. Ironic. Yeah. Well, okay, so if you have questions or comments that you'd like to share with us, um, please do send us your comments by means of the Facebook comment section. Noah Andrews, our webcast engineer, will get those to us, and we'll try to talk about them on the webcast. Um, yeah, go ahead. Let me mention one other thing in regard to this, and I know that, that you and I share similar things, uh, similar ideas on this uh, line. You may express it differently, and that would be great. Uh, but recognizing that what we're talking about in our culture and our society in American politics isn't going to be our primary concern. Right. We are concerned about where our, what our children are going to be going through and so forth. But I'm also thinking about passages like Hebrews 11, uh, where if this does become a law and it does then begin, begin to affect 
other people's jobs and they lose their jobs for various reasons just for stating that they believe in traditional marriage only. Uh, Hebrews 11 talks about the people who by faith did great things, uh, such as uh, had trial of mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonments, stoned, sawn in two, uh, slain with a sword, wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Um, you know, we may face a period where we come under persecution. As Christians, we ought to be more concerned about our faithfulness regardless of what American politics do. Amen to that. We are not guaranteed that we're going to live in a society that respects the Word of God. And maybe too much of the time we're trying to protect that society or hold on to that society because we believe somehow that the United States of America is ordained of God to be here eternally as a bastion of freedom. It's just not so. Uh, And my identity cannot be tied up with the United States of America. It must be with the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And, And we hope that the laws are passed such that we can live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. First uh, Timothy two two, laws could help determine how we live that. But even the following verses, I think, explain the reason for that, because God desires all men to be saved. And so, if we can have a uh, a government that is uh, tolerant of the teaching of the gospel, then that might be be helpful in in some terms. On the other hand, persecutions may drive people to deciding clearly if they're going to follow the Lord or not. Well, you know what? Uh, you kind of uh, you weed out the chaff kind of to mix some metaphors a little bit when being a Christian costs us something. Yeah. Um, and maybe those, those who are going to truly serve the Lord will become evident. You have to be serious about serving the Lord when you're having to go against the tide or go against the current. Okay, well, uh, let's move on to another topic here. Um, there's another thing that we want to talk about, and that's this uh, discovery of this manuscript. I think I've got a quote that I want to bring up here real quickly, if I can find it. Um, let's see, where is it? Uh, right here, maybe. Yes, here we go. This is from a blog called Pathius, but it's typical of a mentality that we see today. What's being reported is the discovery of a new document or a new manuscript that gives us the real lowdown um, as to what went on between Jesus and his brother James. And, quote, I'm quoting now from this blog, this is just another example of an ancient Christian text that was left out of the Bible when certain authorities said that it didn't fit with the rest of the narrative. We hear this a lot lately. Something comes along. There was the thing uh, two or three years ago, uh, supposedly um, alluding to Jesus's wife. And there's a lot of news about that. People got excited about that. And the people get excited about that in large measure because they see these things as undermining what they perceive to be religious orthodoxy. They see them as undermining what they perceive to be the uh, respect of the Bible as the word of God. And, and they see an opportunity to say, you know what, the Bible was just uh, a contrived hodgepodge of writings by people who had a, an agenda. Um, and they're saying, now we're finding out the real story. Well, let me tell you the real story about this 
this manuscript that's been found. It's called the first apocalypse, first apocalypse of James. Of course, James was one of Jesus' brothers. And he's mentioned in the Bible. This document purports to um, bring to us a conversation between Jesus and James in which Jesus tells James that James is going to die. And he gives James the secret things that James needs to say in order to get past the supernatural beings or powers that are going to hinder him from getting to eternal life once he has died. And uh, so he, he has these things that he knows he's to say to get there. Um, the thing about this, <laughs> several things about this, it's not a newly discovered uh, work. The Nag Hammadi uh, documents, Nag Hammadi is a city in Egypt, and in 1945, there was a cache of documents found in this city. And many of them are Gnostic documents. If you read this particular document, it was found in 1945 in Coptic, in the Coptic language. And if you read it, uh, it sounds like Gnosticism. It has all the language of, well, not all, but it has a lot of language that is Gnostic language, referring to to entities that the Gnostics believed in and using the numerology of the Gnostics and that kind of thing. I may even read a little bit of it to you here in a minute. But what has now recently been discovered is simply a, a copy of that same document or that same work, but this time in Greek. Uh, a couple of researchers from the University of Texas in Austin, I believe, went to Oxford and in the collection of manuscripts uh, that they have there in Oxford, uh, from Nag Hammadi, they found one that had not been yet identified, and, and lo and behold, it turned out to be a Greek translation um, of this same document that we've known about since 1945, and in fact, you can go on Google and type in First Apocalypse of James, and you'll come up with a couple of different places on the internet where you can read the document and have been able to read the document for years. Uh, but now somebody's found a copy of it in Greek, and this gives an opportunity for the media to act like something new has been discovered. Uh, there is some debate as to whether it was originally written in Greek or Coptic or something else. Um, Wikipedia claims that this was originally written in Greek, but they're claiming that based on a Newsweek article, and I'm not sure Newsweek has that right. It looks to me as if there's some dispute about that, that most of these documents were likely originally written in Coptic. We may be looking at a Latter-day translation of this work. So that's what we're talking about. And, and so I guess uh, I'm, I'm quite a novice at, at this uh, topic and of manuscripts in general anyway, uh, but the article that you were reading from that seemed to, to take joy in the fact that this new, quote, new discovery um, called into question the scriptures, said something about the fact that it was left out because it didn't fit the narrative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that, that doesn't seem like an overly concerning issue to me. Uh, isn't that what, say, for example, journalists do? If uh, they're putting together information on a, a certain topic and somebody, something else comes in that just seems like it's out in left field, well, that doesn't fit the narrative. That, that doesn't fit everything else that they have. And so they don't include that because it's not credible. <laughs> yeah. <okay. laughs> I know that's not what they're implying. But. 
it, it, it very much, I would almost want to say thank you. You're right. It doesn't fit everything else we know from Scripture. Yeah, and, that, and that's true. It, 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 it's very much, if you read it and you read Scripture, they sound like two different things, truly. Uh, and these are not things that were written at the time that the New Testament writings were written. These are things that are written much later on, 100, 200 years later, that kind of thing. Uh, and there were, a, you know, <coughs> we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised that someone as, as prominent as Jesus, who has affected the history of the world as he has, and someone uh, who even in his own day moved thousands and thousands of people to, to follow him, and in the years shortly after his death, uh, his message spread to begin a movement that was just tremendous. We should not be surprised if over the next 100 or 200 or 300 years, various people of various mindsets would come along and write things about Jesus and even make use of the name of Jesus uh, to advance their own agendas. And so, you know, to, to dig one of these things up and say, aha, here's the real truth is a little bit misguided. I'm gonna let me read just a little bit of this to you. Let me see where can I, where did I, I put that somewhere here? If I can get to it real quickly before we go on to our other topic. Yeah, here we go. I'm gonna read a little bit to you. This is the part about. Um, uh, let's see here. James said, uh, "Lord said, this is from this so-called second uh, first apocalypse of of James. This supposed conversation between James and Jesus." Um, let me see if I can find the, the part that I want here. Um, James said, Rabbi, are there then 12 hebdomads and not seven as there are in the scriptures? The Lord said, James, he who spoke concerning this scripture had a limited understanding. I, however, shall reveal to you what has come forth from him who has no number. I shall give a sign concerning their number. As for what has come forth from him who has no measure, I shall give a sign concerning their measure. Uh, James said, Rabbi, behold, then I have received their number. There are 72 measures. And the Lord said, these are the 72 heavens, which are their subordinates. I'll skip down a little bit, but if you're familiar with Gnostic writings and Gnostic doctrines, you'll notice the preoccupation with uh, hebdomads and such things as that. That's groups of seven. Later on in the text, uh, there are 12 of the type disciples and the 12 pairs. Akamoth, which is a big figure in Gnostic thinking, which is translated Sophia, and who I myself am, and who the imperishable Sophia is, through whom you will be redeemed, and who are all the sons of him who is. These things they have known and have hidden within them. You are to hide these things within you, and you are to keep silence, but you are to reveal them to Adai. When you depart, immediately war will be made with this land. Weep then, etc., etc., and then a little bit later on, it gives James the passwords for getting past the very supernatural beings that are going to hinder his entering into eternal life. Does that sound like what we read in Scripture? Does that sound like typical Gnostic garbage? Sounds like something that's being written for a modern-day movie. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. Uh, what's his name? Dan Brown? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yes, exactly. Okay. All right. Comments, questions from our viewers would be welcome. We'd love to have you. Uh, join us in the, in the webcast this afternoon if you have things that you'd like for us to talk about. Let's talk a little bit about skip generations and the age of the earth a little bit, Joe. Does that all sound right. all right at this point? That does sound good, and that is a good follow-up from what we talked about in, with, uh, with Luke last week. 
Yes, and I need to bring up, I need to see if I can, there we go, right there. I can share a screen here. All right. So, Joe, uh, I believe I'm successfully sharing my screen at this point. Can you see on the screen where it says seeming indications that the earth? It is, it is on the screen. All right, great. So, Joe, it's no secret that um, science likes to talk about the earth as being four and a half or so billion years old, right? Yes. And if we look at some of the natural processes uh, that we see ongoing in the world today and in the universe today, um, and if we extrapolate from those processes backwards, if we extrapolate making a couple of assumptions, namely that the rate at which we see these processes in nature going on today is, has always and forever been constant, and if we also assume that we can know at what point things were when the process began, then it would seem like the earth is very, very, very old. And, and I'm talking about processes like geological change, geological formations. I'm talking about light uh, moving through the universe. Uh, I'm talking about the development of the so-called fossil fuels, those kinds of things. If we look at, at the rate at which these things transpire today, and we say they've always progressed at the same rate they progress today, and uh, we can know the geological state of something when it began, then if we extrapolate backwards, we would come up with an age of the earth that is very, very, very old. Uh, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a given. I think that it's important to, to underscore, though, that in doing that, we are making some assumptions that we do not need to make if we believe Number one, there is a God who created things and he did not create them in a primitive state. He created them in a fully developed, mature, and ready-to-function state. And so when we ex extrapolate backwards to a primitive state, we assume that all igneous rocks had to start out as molten lava, for example, um, then, then we're, we're assuming something we don't have to assume if we believe God created things ready to function. And the, the other assumption that is made is that everything is progressed at the same rate we see it progressing today. And we don't have to assume that either if we believe there is a God who has intervened in the affairs of this universe and this world in a big way, notably in the flood, at which point it seems there were some dramatic changes in the way life, and I don't mean life, biological life, I mean just the way things function on this planet, for example, it seems things were very different before the flood than afterwards. So I don't, I don't buy into making those assumptions, but people do make those assumptions. When they do, they say, well, the earth must be four and a half billion years old and man must have been here uh, however many, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years and life on this earth must have been here however many millions of years. And then they have to try to reconcile that with what they see in the Bible. The problem is, Joe, the Bible doesn't seem to present creation, the six days of creation, as having taken place four and a half billion years ago, for example, right? Exactly. Which the generations that were uh, alluded to at the beginning uh, are, are tied to that, right? 
Right. So people say, well, maybe we can get millions of years in between the six days of creation and today if we say there were skipped generations in the genealogies in the Bible. And so really maybe the six days of creation took place millions and millions of years ago, or, or maybe even there was time before that. So let me talk about three ways people try to get these <coughs> millions of years into the biblical account. This is when people try to reconcile what the Bible says with what science is telling them. And they're trying to find some place in the biblical record where they can stick millions and millions of years. And there are three places where they think they, they try to do it. I mean, not everybody tries all three, but some people will try one and some people will try another. So some people will try to put the millions of years before the creation week. And some will try to put them during the creation week. And some will try to put them after the creation week. And then we end up talking about the flood a little bit. But let's look just briefly at the first two of these. When people try to come up with an, uh, a place where we can put these millions of years before the six days of creation, it works like this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2 says, and the earth was formless. Uh, and well, let me turn to it and read it. And the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the earth. And that's where people suppose there's a gap, that, that God created the earth, and then there's a gap, a large period of time during which the earth was formless and void. And then chapters, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and following starts to tell us the story of the six days of creation. So they might suppose we can stick millions of years right there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And this gets interesting I'll, I'll say this, Joe, and I don't know what you think about this, but chapter 1, verse 1, uh, does look like, to me, it is a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a summary of the rest of Genesis chapter 1. I, I don't think of that as a statement. Okay, God created the heavens and the earth. Next, he said he created light. I really do think it makes sense to see Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 as a summary of, of what he's going to explain in detail, starting in verse 3. But if we accept that, then you have this statement in verse 2, the earth was formless and void, and there's an opportunity there for somebody to say, aha, how long was the earth formless and void? If we don't have, if we have a full account of creation, but we don't have an account of when the globe was actually created, maybe it, it was there for millions of years. That presents some problems when we get down to verse 14. I'm not going to go into that. What I really want to do is, is just mention the pre-atomism. Pre have you ever heard of pre-atomism? I don't believe that I have. Well, what do you think pre-atomism would be? Uh, maybe a belief that people were, uh, the God had created other people before Adam or something? I think that's exactly what it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm a good guesser. That's really good. So there's this idea. It became popular in the latter part of the 19th century, the latter part of the 1800s. And it became popular amongst uh, religious people. Uh, and it was a means of reconciling the Bible with all these finds of fossils that were being dated millions of years ago. And so they said, well, maybe God created a race of hominids, human-like creatures, uh, before he created Adam and Eve, before the six days of creation. And these people lived during this gap. They lived back during the time 
um, before the six days of creation, but they were somehow wicked or something went wrong and God had to destroy it all. And so then the earth, they say Genesis 1-2 should be translated, became formless and void. Hmm. And so then they say, uh, now then Genesis 1 in verse 3 starts with the new creation. So that's pre-Adamism. Uh, it's an idea that was that was advocated in the Schofield Reference Bible. Do you have a copy of the Schofield Reference Bible? I think I have it somewhere behind me. And it's um, it represents the premillennial dispensational premillennial viewpoint. So I do n- I would not be familiar with that. Uh, oh, okay, all right. Well, the Schofield Reference Bible was a, a Bible. Uh, it had a lot of footnotes in it that explained much of the Bible in terms of dispensational premillennialism. And, and the editors of the Schofield Reference Bible advocated pre-Adamism. So in Isaiah 45, verse 18, um, they, they have these footnotes. Only the earth, not the universe, is said to have been without form and void. The face of the earth bears the mark of a catastrophe. The word was may also be translated became, became without form and void. Tahu Wabahu or Tahu Wabohu, which means formless and void, is used to describe a condition produced by divine judgment. Such a prehistoric divine judgment would throw some light on Satan's fall, and this interpretation leaves room for an undetermined period of time between the original creation and divine judgment. So that that idea was being promoted in the Schofield Reference Bible. Well, uh, there are some other um, things that we want to note here. Let's go to the idea that the time could go into the creation week. In the creation week, uh, some people would say each of these days of the creation week was millions of years long, and they try to put the time there. But what I really want to do before, and that would be the day-age theory, right, Joe? Right, right. What I really want to do is talk uh, about this idea that we can get the time after the creation week. I, I don't buy into the pre-Adamism. I don't buy into the idea that the creation week was actually, each day was millions of years long or something like that. And, and I don't buy into this third idea either, but here's why. This is the one I want to talk about. And just briefly, on the first two items, uh, evolutionists wouldn't be satisfied with those uh, uh, compromises either. Is that not correct? No, I no because they don't believe the Bible anyway. Uh, now you're talking about theistic evolutionists or atheistic evolutionists. Uh, well, I guess especially atheistic. I mean, regardless of whether they believe in the Bible, taking those positions, they would still have the age of man much longer. Uh, even if the yeah. earth, then yeah. we we still after that uh, sixth day, you've still got a huge issue. Well, the, with the pre-Adamism, yes, you still have man's creation in Genesis 1 then being something on the order of six or 7,000 years ago, and that doesn't work with evolutionary theory or Darwinianism. If you make the creation week millions of years long, then maybe, well, you still get man created at the end of that. Of course, maybe if that last, that sixth day of creation is actually millions of years long, maybe you could get man's creation far enough back to satisfy the evolutionists. But yeah, this, I, yeah, I don't think you would, if I understand it right, you wouldn't be able to satisfy their understanding, especially of animals, prehistoric animals. And well, so. that's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. So, but this idea of the skip generations, this is one that people throw out a lot of times. I don't want to spend just five minutes on here. The idea of skip generations. Um, we're not going to find millions of years after the time of Abraham. 
Uh, it's going to have to be before Abraham. Abraham lived roughly 2,000 years ago, a little bit less, I think, but we'll just for round numbers, we'll say 2,000 years ago. So if we're going to find millions of years ago, we're going to have to, if we're going to find millions of years to stick into the biblical record, it's going to have to be before Abraham. And so, well, if we start looking at the genealogies that describe the people who lived before Abraham, in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 9, now watch this, Joe. Enish lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. And then in verse 12, Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. And then in verse 15, Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Now here's the point that I want to make. This genealogy, this, the way it's worded, it does not allow for millions of years to be stuck in here. Here's why. Even if we were to suppose that Enish is not actually the immediate father of Kenan, even if we were to suppose that Enish is the, the grandfather or the great-grandfather of Kenan, it still says he became that when he was 90 years old. And then Kenan became father, grandfather, great-grandfather, whatever you want to suppose it is, of Mahalalel when he was 70 years old. What that means is that however many generations somebody might want to squeeze in between there, it was still 70 years from the time that Enish became the father of Kenan until the time Kenan became the father of Mahalalel. Right, right. So we're not, if we could squeeze in some generations, we wouldn't be able to squeeze in any time. And then when we look at the descendants uh, in Genesis chapter uh, 11 of, of, um, of uh, uh, Seth, uh, Shem, of Shem, Noah's son, Arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah, down in verse 14. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. So again, if you could squeeze in a generation, you're not going to add in a bunch of time. Now, there, there is this, though, to observe, right? As we get those arrows out of the way. Right here, there is a little wrinkle. Right here, Luke chapter 3, verse 36, gives us this same genealogy, and it mentions a Kainan who came between Arpachshad and Shelah. <coughs> so the interesting thing is that in the Septuagint, what's the Septuagint? The Greek translation of the Old Testament. Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Greek text of Genesis 11, Kainan is there. And here's what the text says. After begetting Kainan, Arpachshad lived 430 years and begat sons and daughters, and he died. And Kainan lived 130 years and begat Shelah. And after begetting Shelah, Kainan lived 330 years and begat sons and daughters, and he died. So we can get an extra 130 years in there. Apparently, if Kainan belongs here, the Hebrew text did miss him. Um, the genealogy is given again in First Chronicles 1, and some of the Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament scriptures have Kynan there. So either Kynan belongs between Arphaxad and Shelah, or he doesn't. If he belongs, then the Septuagint, as well as Luke, is correct, and there's no missing generation. If he does not belong, there's no missing generation. So, yes, here's where people get this about the missing generations. They get this because um, in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 1, when he gives the genealogy of Jesus, in the descendants from David down to Jesus, in the kings, clearly there are some men left out. There's some generations left out. Uh, we know that because we have the record of 
the more detailed record of the genealogies in the Old Testament. But you cannot infer from Matthew chapter 1 skipped generations back in Genesis chapter 4 or Genesis chapter 11 before Abraham because the language is different. The language in Genesis chapter 4 and the language in Genesis chapter 11 is not like the language of Matthew chapter 1. It's giving you this guy lived so many years, became the father of this guy, and then this guy lived so many years and became the father of this guy. It doesn't sound like there are skipped generations. If Kynan happens to be a so-called skipped generation, it's really a transcription error more than it is a skipped generation. And if you could argue that father means grandfather or great-grandfather, that wouldn't affect the, the, the calculation because the, the years are given. So I just, I just wanted to walk through that real quickly. I think it's really helpful. And that also ties back to some of the things that you showed, uh, what, maybe a month and a half or so ago uh, regarding the, the ancient manuscripts and how some things had been left out and uh, annotations included and so forth. Sure. Really easy explanation for the, the Genesis Kynan uh, omission. Yeah. All right. Well, we're out of time today. Next week, we've got Gardner Hall coming on, don't we? We do. Looking forward to that. What's he going to talk to us about? Whatever he wants to. Okay. <laughs> He's the gorilla, huh? <laughs> All right. he, he, he just has so much knowledge and experience in his life. I'm just looking forward to, to hearing him uh, uh, discuss some things that are dear to him. All right. Well, thanks, Joe. And thanks to our viewers. And thanks to Noah for uh, engineering this webcast. We'll see you all next week.